what I want to do is just paraphrase what that tract said, okay? And, uh, it has a statement which says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, uh, Christ works a miracle in you, and he moves it. And then from then on, it goes in a back-and-forth Q&A kind of a format. So the question it asks is, if Christ lives in me, why do I fall so often? Why do I trip? Why do I fall? And then the answer is, uh, how was it at your first birth, the physical one? Did you walk the day you were born? Uh, initially, did you fall more than you walked? And then it asked this question, if I fall so often, do I question my salvation? And the answer is, uh, did you as a one-year-old, when you fell, shake your head and think, oh my, I've fallen again, am I, am I human? Or did I, or was I born at all? Now, of course, you know, it's the question that's been asked is for us to start thinking because, you know, the, the stumbles and the fall of a toddler, in fact, proves that the toddler is alive. Uh, something about the Christian life. You see, when we have this new birth, we are given this new power, the very Spirit of God. To work in our lives. We have this. And so it, it, this new life is experienced. It's lived out through the power of the Spirit. Uh, the daily struggle that we have, the choice that we have to make between the, the old self and, and this new life that we have, this, the struggle. We were talking about it last week, about the butterfly coming out of the chrysalis, right? The, the trying to come out, uh, that's going to be a daily struggle. This putting to death the old man is not something that happened uh, once for all at the time of salvation. It's a struggle on a daily basis. And so last week when we looked at imitating God, we, you know, we, we said the only, we, we are by nature imitators. We do imitate. And if we are going to imitate, we need to imitate who? Who? Who do we imitate? God. We, we looked at that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, chap, chapter 5, verse 1, 1 and 2. We saw that last week. We saw that there is... We actually saw two steps, but there are three steps that we'll cover. The third step we'll cover today. But the first step we saw, if we need to be filled by the Holy Spirit, the first thing that we need to do is what? Yeah, walk away. We need to empty ourselves. What is full, we need to empty. Because if you don't empty, we can't fill. So the first thing is you have to empty yourself. You have to walk away from what is evil. In fact, chapter 5, verse 3 of Ephesians says, such wickedness, such evil things should not even be named among you. So you've emptied yourself, the first one, the first step. Then you have the second step, which is the filling up. And not just filling up with anything. Chapter 5, verse 18 says, "What what are we to be filled up with? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We also looked at the meaning of what filling is. Three ways of looking at it. First we saw it's, remember, the sail. We are not speedboats. We are not motorized boats. But we are sailboats that needs to catch the wind, the pneuma, the Spirit of God. And thereby we are moved. And second, we have said, not just sail, the filling can also be seen as salt, salt, which permeates all of us, complete, just like the dye that you pour into the glass of water, and it covers the whole glass of water. It's salt that permeates, sail that powers, salt that permeates. And the third one, 
we saw is not unlike, not very unlike this strong drink, we would be controlled by the Spirit himself. Controlled. So, going forward, I'll use the, you know, Spirit-controlled or Spirit-filled interchangeably, but I I hope you understand that we need to be Spirit-filled, and because we are Spirit-filled, we'll be Spirit-controlled. And today, what we want to do is we want to look at the third step. You see, after I've emptied myself, walking away from what's evil and what's wicked, I, I, I say no to that. Now walk away from that. I'm filled by the Spirit of God. And the third thing that happens is because th- this needs to overflow out. I can't contain it. We're too small to contain when the Spirit of God is in us In the filling of the Spirit is in us. Uh, the imagery that I get is that of uh, the popcorn machine. You know, you put the corn kernels and you put this bag out there. It's just like, it's just falling out. You can't just contain it. Right? Um, I think about uh, Superman in the DC, uh, the DC comics. Right? The guy who, you know, when the Superman clock can he just, I'm not going to do it, but he just rips his shirt and you see inside the S. Right? The Superman. But I really think DC Comics plagiarized uh, the Bible. Because that's the image of what a Christian ought to be. Like when he rips a shirt, he or she rips the outer garment. You see the S, the Spirit of God. But the point is this. But the point is this. We don't really have to rip open to show that we have the Spirit of God because we are too small a container that when we are filled by the Spirit, He overwhelms, overfills, and it's, and it's expressed in every aspect of our life. It becomes evident in every aspect of our lives. And so this chapter 5, as we will look, and also uh, a little bit of chapter 6, there are five areas, there are five areas where we will see uh, the life being impacted because of the overflow of the Spirit. So the first is the church life. Well, what we want to do is we will just overview today, and hopefully we'll come back to it during the year to go in detail, all right? So the first one is the church life. The second is the family life. The third is the parental life. A fourth is the work life. And the fifth is the individual life. We will quickly go through this. We won't spend much time. So the first one is the church life. If you will turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 19 to 21. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, first of all, you need to ask me, how do I know that's about the church? And I don't understand Greek, so I'll look up commentaries. All right, and so Eliot's commentary, one of that commentary, says that is the grammatical construction that helps us understand that, all right? But whatever it is, what I'd like us to know that there is something about a spirit-controlled individual and how he impacts the local church. A spirit-controlled individual, his life will be evidenced or impacts the local church, what happens, 19 and 20, we saw that one of the things is praising and singing and thankfulness. That's a natural evidence of somebody who's bubbling over. If, if joy is the fruit of who? Of the Spirit. If joy is the fruit of the Spirit, a Spirit-filled person will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the praising and singing and thankfulness would be a natural outcome. Verse 21, you see what verse 21 says. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse is saying, if you revere Christ, if you want to glorify Christ, if that is your goal, the evidence that happens is that you submit one to another within the church. 
Paul talks about it again in Philippians. If you will turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 5. Philippians chapter 2, if you flip one uh, page to your right, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 5. It says, do nothing, do nothing, listen to this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, which is pride, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourself. Let each one look not into your own interest, but also into the interest of the, of the others. Have this mind among yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. You will submit one to another. In the same words, look at this. The Lord will be revered. The Lord will be glorified in our midst. You want God to be glorified? You see, the way we can do that is when we have the Spirit of God within us because John chapter 16, verse 14, when the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about the disciples that, that are going to come, um, sorry, uh, talking to the disciples about the Spirit who's going to come, he says, he will glorify me. He'll glorify me. And therefore, the impact, I want you to listen to this, the impact of a spirit-controlled church, which is the gathering of a spirit-filled people, is that God will be glorified. What do I say? I say that if you're spirit-filled, and you come together, which then makes it a spirit-filled church, the natural outcome, the automatic outcome is what? Is what? God will be glorified. God will be glorified. Okay? All right. Um, there are certain other things in chapter 16, which I'd like you to understand. In 16 and 8, uh, he, he, uh, there'll be conversions. The Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the Spirit, he says when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. All right? And he say, he's going to convict. And so what happens when a person is filled with the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God. He, he gets to co-labor in this wonderful work of the gospel. In, in this wonderful work of the gospel, he is able to co-labor and to, to see world being transformed through the salvation of the souls. John chapter 16, verse 13, there's another thing. It says, and he will guide you to all the truth. It's the Spirit of God whose, whose role is to guide us to the truth, to guide us to the truth. He'll create that excitement in our soul. He, he, he will bring the hunger for our spirit towards God's word. Well, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You know, you go, you're hungry, you, you go to the fridge and you open the fridge, all right, and it's full of food. And I'm talking to you emotional eaters. You look at the, the fridge is full of food, but there's nothing in the fridge which excites you, which is like, okay, that's what I want to eat. It's not there. And what do you do? You just close the fridge and you say, I'm not hungry. Or you might just pick up cereal or cookies and just walk away. But really what happened is not that you're not hungry, but you don't have an appetite. What the Spirit of God does for us is creates this appetite for God's Word an appetite for God's word because it's through the, the reading and studying of God's word that we get to know about the Lord who he seeks to glorify in our lives. And so the, the appetite to learn and to study God's word when the spirit of God takes control of our lives. And I think it's important right now to just pause and to, to just detour, if you would, and, and just say, why do we have different meetings? And what's the function of those two meetings? All right. So you have this Sunday morning preaching, and then you have the Friday evening teaching. You might think, well, I'm just going to church twice a week. And really, the purposes are two. One is preaching, and the other is teaching. And so it's important that we know the difference between preaching and teaching. The Sunday morning is expositional. You go through it. You try and understand what that, well, the passage is saying. It's exhortation. It's encouragement. It's comfort. You're trying to, to get a feel and understand what Bible is trying to tell you. That's preaching. 
But then on Friday, which is teaching, the, it's a detailed study. You, you, you look at that and you go into that detail. You try to understand the concepts and you want information as to why, the how. So you're not just looking at the grand scheme, but also getting into the details, the preaching and the teaching. Let me give you some examples from the New Testament as to why both preaching and teaching are important. Acts chapter 15, verse 35. Acts chapter 15, verse 35, it says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. It's also there in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. But I want to move your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. And say it, uh, brothers and sisters, what? Preaching and teaching. Or teaching, uh, preaching and teaching. All right, so, so I, I want you to understand that this preaching and teaching is how we learn God's word in the corporate setting. I also wanted to clarify this importance uh, that we give sometimes for the communion, the Lord's Supper over preaching. And that I feel, too, is wrong because let me, let me read to you a quote. It's a lengthy quote, but stay with me. It's written by uh, J.C. Riley on his exposition uh, on Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Mark chapter 1, verse 38 is where the Lord Jesus Christ is telling Peter, and he says, preaching is the reason why I came. And he writes this. Listen to this. Let us never be moved by those who cry down the preacher's office. And tell us that sacraments and other ordinances are more important than sermons. Let us give to every part of God's public worship its proper place and honor. But let us beware of placing any part of it above preaching. By preaching, the church of Christ was gathered together and founded. And by preaching, it has been maintained, it has been, it, it, it has ever been maintained, sorry, in health and prosperity. By preaching, sinners were awakened. By preaching, inquirers are held on. By preaching, the saints were built up. It's the very work of Christ that he took upon himself. The King of kings and the Lord of, Lord of lords was once a preacher. For three long years, he went to and fro proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes we see him in a house, sometimes on the mountainside, sometimes in a Jewish synagogue, sometimes in a boat on the sea. But the great work he took up always one and the same. He came forth to preach and to teach. Therefore, he says, came I forth. And let us leave this passage with a solemn resolution never to despise prophesying, which is 1 Thessalonians 5.20. The minister, listen to this, the minister we hear may not be highly gifted. The sermons that we listen to may be weak and poor, but after all, preaching is God's grand ordinance for converting and saving souls. The faithful preacher of the gospel is handling the very weapon with the Son of God was not ashamed to employ. This is the work for which Christ has come. Therefore came I forth. And what is Riley saying? He's saying the importance of preaching. That we, we don't undercut that. And the ones who deliver it may not be the greatest expositors, may not be celebrity preachers, may not be any of those. But they're handling God's word. And as you say, I want, Lord, the Spirit of God, I want you to feed me. I want you to show me the wonders and the beauty of Jesus Christ. You see, in spite of the preacher himself, the Spirit of God will speak into your hearts and show you the beauties of Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand that when we come together in this corporate setting to learn God's Word, we learn it in accountability. You know, we think sometimes we can just turn on YouTube and listen to, you know, whatever sermons happening out there, and that should be all right. But that's your private study. Uh, and even that is not really. 
But again and again, Acts and the epistles remind us of the importance of coming together and learning through preaching and to teach, and, and, and pre through preaching and teaching. But the spirit-controlled person submits to one another, seeks to learn Christ through the spirit, and all for the glory of God. So one of the things that if your spirit failed is that your life will impact the local church. You will submit one to another. You want to learn about Christ. You want God glorified in our midst. And that's, that's what the Holy Spirit, you know, his role is to glorify Christ. And that will happen when we give ourselves to him. Chapter 22 to verse 33 speaks about the, um, the family life between the wives and the husband. It's interesting, as you read this passage, you'll realize that w what the Bible has listed here are things that our natural self, our flesh, hates to do. It doesn't want to, you know, the wives are told to godly submit. Husbands are told to be selfless and sacrificial in their love. They are to nourish and to cherish their wives. There's been you know, much ink and blood shed, right, as to we're trying to understand, oh, what does that mean to submit? We want to dissect it, make it palatable. Well, what does it mean to love, sacrificial love and, and, uh, and selfless love? Uh, what, what does it mean to cherish and what does it mean to nourish? Because our natural instinct is to say that is not what God is meaning. It cannot be because we want to get up uh, and understanding a definition which is better suited for our old, natural, stinking self. But a spirit-filled person, a spirit-filled person, will know the importance of what God's Word is saying and is able to fulfill the requirement which is humanly impossible. It's only through the spirit of God. I remember in the, uh, I think it was this winter, this just past winter. It was evening, it was cold. I had to fill gas. So I pull into a filling station. I come to this filling unit and I'm trying to put the hose in and it's just not going into the car nozzle, you know. And then I say, oh, I'm just like, I'm already wanting, you know, I just want to get in back into the car, into the comfort and the warmth of the car. And then I realized that I'm at a diesel uh, filling unit. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that the fail safe on that hose prevented me to, to put the hose into the tank. You see, my gas, uh, my car, I would have ruined it. Some of us have cars that need special fuel, right? And you try and put a different fuel, what's going to happen to your car? You, you will ruin it. That's not very different with Christian marriages. That's not very different because the fuel that it needs is the filling of the Spirit of God. We try and run these marriages with any other fuel. We will mess, make a mess of it. We will ruin it. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, this is the truth, that unless we are spirit-filled, this is not an option. Don't think that this is for the 10% or the 20% of this congregation. If we are not spirit-filled, if we don't say the things that need to be given up, that, that stinking self, that we want to give it up and take on the, the filling of the Spirit, we would, we would make a mess in our Christian life, in our church life, and in our married lives. But keep following with me as I go through to, the, to chapter 6, verse 1 and 4. Where it talks about the, the parental life. So you have the church life. We said that when we come together, when we are spirit-filled, the natural consequence of that is in our midst. Who is glorified? The Lord is glorified. 
we're thankful for that. Because we can't do that apart from his spirit. And when we as husbands and wives are living the spirit-filled lives, and I want to tell you, one way to have this abundant life is through the spirit of God, being abiding in him. This abundant living will be experienced in your married lives too. Because it's the spirit of God who helps us live uh, in spite of us in spite of the other person. But then look at the parental life. Look at the parental life. Parents. No, I know the fathers, as the head of the family, especially called out, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may, all, it may go well with you and that you may live long in the island, uh, long in the land, sorry, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are singled out, especially as the heads of the family, but the role is that of both the mother and the father as they parent, because the mother, as as they help, they co-help, and they come together parenting. I want to spend a little time here considering the the uh, increase that we have that God has given us with children. All right, praise God for that. But spirit-filled parents, I want you to understand this. Spirit-filled parents are not perfect parents. Spirit-filled parents are not perfect parents as their child expects them to be. They're not perfect as the child wants them to be, but they are what God wants them to be. I want you to understand that just because you're spirit-filled doesn't, make you, doesn't say that you won't make mistakes. You will make mistakes in the frailty of your humanity. But you, being spirit-filled, will be the first to have the humility to accept that they can't do this apart from the Spirit of God. That you need His power working in you to do what is impossible, to care for the souls of these young ones so that they'd be impacted for eternity. You know, when you're driving a town, sometimes you see this uh, uh, friendliest place in town. I'm not sure whether you ever saw that, but sometimes you, you, know, you see that, and it's actually always, almost always, over a pub or a tavern. As people come to drink and you know, drown the sorrows or whatever it is, and say this is the friendliest place in town. Uh, it'd be in, inevitable almost, almost daily probably, they l- have a brawl or a fight or whatever it is, and that's the friendliest place in town. Or I'm not sure if you've seen the smokers huddle, all right, nine feet out of the building, all in a huddle. It's cold and it's, they're shivering, but they have this common cause. There's just something holding them, and this... Uh, camaraderie, if you would. But I I want you to recognize this. Spirit-controlled parents, spirit-filled parents make their homes the safest place in town for the kids. Parents make their home to be the safest place for the kids, spiritually speaking. Spirit-filled parents, as we read here, bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Spirit-filled parents make home a place for instruction and discipline, where God is glorified. Remember Joshua, Joshua 24 and 15, where it says, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The role that Joshua, as the father, as the parent, is playing. You know, unfortunately for our children, there are many places where they get this instruction. I want us to understand this. This world is full of places, full of homes, full of houses where they can get instruction. Let me give you some. One is a schoolhouse. The education they get, they are there more than one-third of their lives or their time growing up in school. 
Then you have the movie house or the movies that they watch, which, which educate their culture, you know, how they look at society. And then there's the jailhouse, which is the, you know, the severe form when you get to that, the correction. Then you have the, the courthouse, the legislative house, and the White House or the Parliament House or whatever it is. But you have these different houses where instruction is given. But listen to this. These rarely teach what is right and probably never ever teach what is biblical. It's in your homes it's your home. That's the place where it begins. And I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there is a YouTube video, and I don't really need you to watch it because it's not worth it. It says Richard Dawkins destroys the Ten Commandments. So it's a debate about how he is talking about these Ten Commandments, and he says, uh, you know, th- these are not commandments. And, and he has the audacity to write up another ten. He says, I want to show God how to write a new law, new Ten Commandments. Uh, and he picks, as an example, the sixth one, which is honor your parents. He says, all right, if you are a sovereign, if you're a sovereign of a country, and you were given an opportunity to make ten laws for the nation, would you put any of these? And, like, why would you put honor your parents? Like, how is that even a law for the nation? It seems very, you know, intellectual as he asked that question. But listen to this. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Listen to this. As broken homes and absentee dads become the norm, we see children who have missed out on discipline and instruction at home. And in turn, it's leading to decay of the moral fabric of our country. Because at home, they have not received that discipline and instruction because of various circumstances, broken homes, abandoned homes, disruptive homes, absentee homes. And because of that, these kids grow up without the template. They learn from where they can all the wrong things, and it's disrupting, it's destroying the moral fabric of our nation. The truth about the Ten Commandments, I want you to get this, right? The truth about the Ten Commandments is this. You see, you have the first five which talk about our relationship with God. Then you have the last four which talks about the relationship with people. Top, top five about God, the bottom four about people. And in between, the sixth one is the one that says, honor your parents. And, and what it is, is home then becomes the filter. Home becomes the filter when theology proper becomes theology practical. Home becomes the filter. Home becomes the place where this concepts about Christian faith and all of those that the Bible teaches is understood. Home becomes the place where... Theology proper becomes theology practical. So parents, we can't afford not to be spirit-filled. We can't, we can't afford to wing it. We can't. We don't have the solution. We are not able to do what is humanly impossible. If you will turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We looked at it yesterday the reading here, but uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was 6 and 7, just 6 and 7. Deuteronomy chapter 6 was 6 and 7. But these words I command you today that shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. That's the origin of the evening devotions, if you would. And when you rise, the origin of the morning devotions, if you would. You see, teaching them, uh, training them, talking to them. 
And so as Paul asked in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Like, how can I do this in my own strength? And how, 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 do we, how, can, we, how can we wing it if we're not spirit-filled? We don't have the power of God to lead us and to guide us, to give us the discernment. From Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, I, I just pulled out three uh, tips, a few words, so that it, it hopefully stays with us. It's teaching, talking, taking. Can you just repeat that with me? Teaching, talking, taking. Teaching, talking, taking. Let me just go through that with you as to what that is, all right? So first, teaching. These are the foundational truths from the Bible, conveying what, what is it that the Bible is saying so that people can understand. And I'm saying, how does that look at home? Evening devotion, you sit there, you read through a passage, talk to them about it. They may be young, talk to them at that level. Go speak to your Sunday school teacher, find out, hey, what has been taught? Would you tell me? How do I supplement? How do I complement what has been learned? I want my child to grow in this faith that I, I know is true. I, 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 you know, it grips my heart. It's important. teaching that, the foundational truths. You know, I grew up in India, and in India, as you walk in our complex where we used to live, or even on the streets in the early morning, those, some of you would be able to attest to that. You know, you would hear this Hindu scriptures coming out, either through the radio or people just saying it out loud, and there's a sense of the word being said out loud. And I want, I, I get it, right? I mean, we, we all have... Uh, uh, music playing in our, in our homes, and that's great. That's okay. You know, the spiritual songs, that's great. But still, that's, those are human words. What about also supplementing it with the Word of God? Play an audio Bible. Let them grow listening to God's Word so that the Spirit of God will start to work in their souls. We put limit on God when we say they're too young to know the truth, that we will teach them. But not just teach them, but we'll also talk. Teach, talk, where we make this conversational. I, I you know, in school I le- learned Sanskrit. I'm like, whoever studies Sanskrit, it's like learning Latin. I have no recollection of what I studied. But I also learned French and I learned German. All right, we're just complicating it even further. So let's just take French. I can read French, probably understand some of the words, but I'm not conversational. I can't speak it. See, I think when I, when I say teaching and talking, this is what I mean, making it conversational. You see, we, we understand this concept. It's conceptual, but let's make it conversational. Let's see how that's lived out in our, in our lives so that our children are able to see the truth of, this, of, this, of the word of God being lived out at home. Teaching, talking, and then taking to immerse them in a place where biblical worldview is being set. Bring them to church. We've always said that. It's good that our kids run around and, you know, kids want to come because they have their friends. That's all right. That's okay. Initially, they'll do that. But I want us to impress in their heart that this is a place where God's word is taught. This is the place where people come together. There's some solemnity about this. There's something about this church that, that creates that safe place in their heart that as you bring them, they grow from just wanting to come for the other, the the, the social aspect of it and move to the maturity of coming together so that can encourage and strengthen and build people up. Teaching, talking, and taking. Third John verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. No greater joy than seeing my children walk in the truth. Parents, the work is cut out for us. The only way 
only way we can even bring them up is, is when we take time to be filled by the Spirit. There's a role for the children too. You see in verse 1 and 2, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Obedience and honor. Obedience in the Lord that is right and honor that has a promise connected. The question you might ask is, what is the difference between obedience and honor? You see, obedience is the visible behavior, what's seen on the outside, but honor is internal. It's the attitude of the child. You see, why is obedience important? Why, why do we ask our children to obey? Because obedience is the best training ground for the will to be submissive. For our will to become submissive, obedience is a good training ground. You see, when we make obedience a habit, and when we grow up, then submission will be a delight. When we learn to obey, and as we grow up, together in this community to be able to submit one to another will not be difficult because of the lifelong habit of obedience. And I want you to know this honor and obedience, they go together. A a child cannot say, no, 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 I do honor my parents. I do, but it doesn't work without the demonstration of the obedience. They both go together. And it's the child who knows the Lord, who learns first to obey and to submit to the Lord, is, who's able to obey and to honor the parents. A spirit-filled church life, a spirit-filled married life, a spirit-filled parenting, a spirit-filled child, and then when you get to chapter 6, verse 5 to 9, it talks about the work life. I want you to understand that exegetically, if you were to say, you know, that would still be part of the family life because the slaves would be working at home, most of them. And so that's an extension of, of the home life. But in our context, we can see this as an area where, uh, you know, how a spirit-filled person impacts uh, the workplace, all right? 5 to 9 of chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both your master master and yours is in heaven, both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. You see this incongruity of the master-slave relationship. I want to, like I said, we'll come back into detail, but I just want to give you a quick overview because, you see, the Bible has been um, um, accused of its silence towards uh, slavery, and in some sense, for permitting the practice of slavery, all right? The question then is asked us, how, how is it that the Bible doesn't speak up? How is it that it didn't stand up for the social justice, right? But when you read this passage, I want you to notice two biblical implications, two biblical principles, or very important. The first is, listen to this, our circumstances has no basis to determine our behavior. Our circumstances must not determine our behavior. Holy Spirit makes it amply clear. He says, your work situation, or your company culture, your boss's attitude, your employee behavior, none of this gives you a license to behave in your flesh. None of it. So what we might have here is probably probably the worst example, uh, example as in relationship between a slave and a master 
And Paul is saying they don't have a license to act in the flesh, to do it as unto the Lord. And so through the ages, you know, this relationship between masters and, and the employee, the employer and the employee, the, the, the question has gone on, right? Each of them having uh, a reason as to why, you know, the other person should change. But Paul, instead of agreeing or disagreeing with the unreasonableness of their situation, Instead of saying, yeah, yeah, I understand your situation. I I get that. I get that it's difficult. I get all that. Paul doesn't even mention that. Paul says, listen, I want to direct your attention to the fact that God must be honored through the way you behave and act. Circumstances do not negate Christ's glorification. Circumstances cannot put a cross on the fact that Christ must be glorified. Injustice does not trump excellence. Just because this injustice does not mean I can do a slipshod job at work. Because I'm doing it as unto my master in heaven. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of who? Of who? Of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. And I, I, I want to say, because the question that you would have is, you know, why, why, you know, why didn't God really speak anything about the emancipation, about the uh, uh, abolishing of slavery? The truth of the matter is this, you see, because when our heart is converted... When our heart is converted by the work of the Spirit and our our heart is set free from the slavery of sin, when this heart is set free from the slavery of sin, then the breaking of that external bond of slavery is only a matter of time. Do you get this? We're saying that if our hearts are, uh, the bondage of uh, sin is broken, then the external bondage of slavery to be broken is only a matter of time. Let me read to you a quote by Dr. John Coffey. He's a historian at the Cambridge University. The year 2007 marks 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade by the British Parliament. The campaign for abolition was spearheaded by devout Christians, and it stands to this day as perhaps the finest political achievement of what would now be called the faith-based activism. What he's saying is this, right? We are getting so caught up in the fact the Bible didn't mention anything about slavery. No, it did about the very root cause. And when that is impacted, when that's affected, when the hearts are converted on the inside, we were talking about the inside out. When the inside is changed, you will begin to see the change on the outside. Sometimes we have this activism trying to work from the outside and we can do anything and everything that we want. But what can only be done through the spirit can never be accomplished through human effort. That's the truth of this passage that we have. It says, you know, circumstances cannot negate, right? We said that. Secondly, a spirit-controlled employer and a spirit-controlled employee who it's only he or she, in spite of circumstances, in in spite of natural inability, can do it as unto the Lord. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see, what it says is, unless we are spirit-filled, whether you're an employer or an employee, you will not be able to please God. You will have problem. The spirit-filled way. You see, when we try to live a holy life, just, you know, live on the outside, everybody looks at you and says, right, this, this person is great, is wonderful. It's a farce because it's an effort on the outside and there's no change on the inside. And I want us to know that there's no other way. You can fake it, but you can never make it. You see, the cost of, of this transformation, as we were reminding ourselves this morning, is the death of Christ. It has to change on the inside. 
it's not just activity on the inside. And it's through the Spirit of God that as we empty ourselves and as we are filled up by the Spirit of God, that this overflow, this gets overwhelmed into every aspect of our life. It gets evidence. People looking at that, they're just joyful. That when we are spirit-filled, the struggle of the inability will be relinquished to the power of the Spirit who works in us. D.L. Moody was just starting off in his ministry, and he heard a preacher make the statement, and we have heard of this, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man fully surrendered to him. And Moody that night said, by God's grace, I'll be that man. My prayer for myself, my prayer for each one of us here, is that we will be that spirit-filled person, that God will use us in a way that this world has yet to see. May his name be glorified. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for the Spirit of God in us. We pray, Lord, that the, uh, the struggles, the, the crisis, the circumstances, the situation, none of that, Lord, would, would steal away from the fact that you have given us the Holy Spirit through whom we can be victorious. And we recognize, Lord, that we have to set aside, put away, cast away, empty ourselves of every sin, every encumbrance, everything that ties us down. Lord, to say no to sin, walk away, and to be filled by the Spirit of God, and that he will then overflow to every aspect of our life that people would see and glorify our Father in heaven. And we pray this, Lord, for each one of us. We pray, Lord, that we would make a commitment to that. We will say, Lord, nothing else matters but just the fact that we want to honor you and we want to honor you in our midst and in our family and on in our individual life. We thank you, Lord, that this prayer is possible because it's your desire and we make it in, your, in the name of your Son and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.